The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And it is my delight and honor today to welcome back Dr. Urvashi Rangan. She is the Director of Consumer Safety and Sustainability at Consumer Reports. She holds a Ph.D. in Environmental Health Sciences from Johns Hopkins University, and she also conducted her postdoctoral work at the Environmental and Occupational Health Science Institute. She was also a National Health Institute Fellow. Dr. Rankin is one of my favorite guests because she is able to decode the meaning of eco-labels, and she is an expert in the area of sustainability production and consumption practices, food safety, and product safety issues related to chemical and contaminant hazards. Welcome back, Dr. Rankin. Thanks so much, Melinda. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I recently read the December 2013 article in Consumer Reports about the high cost of cheap chicken. And I was especially interested to read your accompanying editorial, which spoke about systemic causes of food safety problems. And I want to cover those. So first of all, let's talk about what Consumer Reports found when they tested over 300 packages of chicken nationwide. Sure. We set about to look at the raw chicken breast market and take a look at pathogen levels, other potentially harmful bacteria levels, even taking a deeper dive into some of those bacteria in terms of their virulence. And then we looked at those bacteria and measured them against panels of antibiotics so we could measure rates of antibiotic resistance in these bacteria. As many of your listeners may know, the problem about antibiotics becoming less effective in people is definitely a public health crisis and a growing one. And so looking at antibiotic-resistant organisms, even in the meat we buy, is important so we can connect those kind of dots in terms of what we're doing on the farm and the environment and how that affects public health. So we did look at over 300 raw chicken breasts. We found about 97% of them contained one of the six bacteria that we looked for. We looked for Salmonella and Campylobacter, which are two bacteria very commonly and typically associated with what we all know is a foodborne illness. But what people may not know is that there are other bacteria that lurk on food that may not cause an intestinal illness, but may cause other illnesses outside of the intestine. And so things like enterococcus, even certain types of E. coli, and staphylococcus aureus, as well as Klebsiella pneumonia, these were all the different bacteria that we looked at. But even more concerning to us than the fact that there is bacteria on chicken, because we don't expect it to be zero, but certainly and hopefully less than what we're seeing, we found that more than half of the samples we looked at contained a bacteria that was resistant to three or more antibiotic classes. And while there is differentiation a little bit between bacteria and classes and which ones are most resistant to which particular antibiotics, and there are variations in concern, overall, 
that's a concerning statistic that over half of them would be resistant to being killed by three or more antibiotic classes. And so those were really the overall findings. We did look at the top big brands of chicken, Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride, Purdue, and Sanderson. And we also looked at a lot of minor brands, store brands that we lumped together in one group. And we also looked at organic and no antibiotic lines as a group. And there were some differences among them. We didn't really focus on those in the story because at the end of the day, when it came to safety specifically, that is the levels of bacteria or the resistance rates, we didn't really find that there was any one brand or type to say this is the best one or this is the safe one. So some brands like Tyson actually had zero salmonella, which was very interesting. Purdue actually had less multiple drug resistance than the rest of the chicken. And the no antibiotic organic pool also had less resistance in the bacteria. It was slightly less when you remove Purdue from the sample. It's it's a lot more significant. But again, not enough for us to say this is a clean brand. There were problems kind of all across the way. But we definitely wanted to emphasize that if, you know, for other reasons, you definitely do want to consider these more sustainable, um, more sustainably produced chicken. And so for those reasons, there is a reason to buy organic and no antibiotics. I do think in a way we were perplexed by those results and, and it not being quite as significant. It may be that Purdue was skewing the conventional pool sample so much that the no antibiotic and organic lines didn't look as low as they might have otherwise if Purdue weren't in the conventional comparison. But that said, we also noted a couple of different loopholes that might exist that might also help explain some of those statistics. But overall, those were the findings of our particular report. And in the editorial, what we tried to do was zoom out from the findings and really, you know, to your point, Melinda, and how you like to do things, connect the dots for people all the way back to what we're doing, what we're not doing that helps to mitigate or exacerbate the food safety problems in our system. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting to compare the kinds of media messages that consumers get about the U.S. food system and compare that to what really is available in the meat case. And I'm concerned because with consolidation in the livestock industry and really everything with regard to our food supply, but with consolidation comes fewer consumer choices. So it becomes even more imperative to clean up our act. I am personally tired of hearing that the U.S. has the safest food supply in the world when indeed in your editorial you pull out two countries who score way higher than the U.S., that being Denmark and Sweden. And why do they score higher in having less antibiotic-resistant bacteria in their meat supply? Because they've removed giving animals low level of antibiotics to enhance growth. And I think that that's something that we need to be very active as citizens when we talk to our representatives. So let's talk a little bit about this use of antibiotics, this low-level use of antibiotics. Let's talk about Louise Slaughter, your representative in New York, who is the only microbiologist in, yeah. in D.C., and what is keeping us from moving in the safer direction like Denmark and Sweden? Sure. I think, you know, Denmark and Sweden and, and indeed, you know, 22 other countries in Europe really have 1% salmonella 
or less. So the the focus in the editorial was really taking a look at the presence of salmonella. They also have additional practices around antibiotic use. But what they do differently that, that we don't is that they do take a look at the root causes of the problem. They're at the hatchery. They're on the farm because it, these pathogens or bacteria that we look like, they're all coming from the gut. They're all fecal contaminants. They all live in the in the gut tracts of animals, so in the intestines, in the stomach. Um, and that really keeps it contained from the meat. I think maybe what people don't realize is that meat itself, you know, the muscle inside of us is sterile. There are no bacteria hanging out in our muscles. And it is because when we process these things that they become open to the air, they become open to the environment, that they start to collect bacteria. When things are very unhygienic, you can start to imagine how a a bigger problem is created, dirty animals, dirty processing plants. And then you think about line speeds on the processing plant in USDA right now. The maximum is 140 birds per minute can be processed. They want to up that to 170 birds per minute. And you start to think about that the worker basically doing all of that trimming so, so quickly that there's lots of opportunity for mistake for nicking the gut where you can then start to get even more contamination problems. So there's lots of points along the way you can get it, and our system isn't necessarily addressing all of those concerns in the sense that we don't deal with the origin of the problem. And even where we have standards, like at the processing plant, we're far more focused on, you know, the chlorine bath at the end of the line to wash it off than we are with making sure our line speeds are sane enough so that the workers on the line can actually, one, not cause themselves injury, but two, be able to process these things in a way that is as safe as possible for us at the end of the line. And we don't have those. The issue with antibiotic use is also really troubling. And, you know, if you think about it, when you're sick and you need an antibiotic, you go to the doctor, you get a prescription, and you take your full course of antibiotics. And we want people to take their full course of antibiotics because we want to kill the bacteria and and kill it for good. So you're given what's called a therapeutic level or a therapeutic dose. So that's not low dose, but an actual therapy dose. And that's what kills the bacteria. And certainly on the farm with sick animals, that would be a practice that would be perfectly reasonable and, and to do. If an animal gets sick, you want to make sure you treat that animal. But in our farming, what often happens, especially in very crowded, dense situations, is one animal gets sick, and especially in things like chicken production, the whole flock will get treated because they're not going to bother to get that animal out of the flock and isolate it until it's it's feeling better, it's just almost easier to just up the medication for the entire flock, um, put it in the feed or water, and and voila. Um, So there's sort of these kind of shortcuts that really then add more antibiotic use in that kind of paradigm. But even worse than all of that is the use of antibiotics at very low levels, whether it's for growth promotion or disease prevention. And really, you know, I can't think of a better way to create a resistant bacteria. If I were thinking about a way to get a bacteria that were very, very resistant, I might think about giving them little low levels and pulse them with low levels every day. So it doesn't really kill them. 
it just sort of teases them to become more resistant. And bacteria divide every day, even hourly. So they are constantly changing their genes to adapt to their environment. They are built that way to protect themselves. And so when they're insulted or given these sort of low teasing levels of antibiotics every day, it's really an invitation to grow this resistance problem and the resistance patterns that that we see. And those are the types of practices that again, encourage these resistant bacteria to proliferate in the environment, to grow, to move, to contaminate our food, our fertilizers. Even if you're vegetarian, we take manures from these animals. That's where the antibiotics and pathogens are often sort of all hanging out together. And even using that on crops can then lead to problems later on. So it's all about managing things at the source of the problem and in a more sustainable way. Why do we use these antibiotics every day? Well, when you cram animals together and they're really close together, they spread disease very, very quickly. And so it's just almost easier if you don't want to deal with cleaning things up properly to just kind of douse a little bit of antibiotic in there for the sort of short lives that these animals have. And it's really an artificially cheap way to do it. And unfortunately, we end up creating these other problems that we're now facing, such as the creation of resistant bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Foster Farms outbreak is particularly interesting. We're still in the outbreak. The last case was still December 1st. We're dealing with multi-drug resistant salmonella, seven different types of strains. And even just yesterday, the CDC formally offered that it might be because of this multi-drug resistant that has led to the doubling of hospitalization rate in this outbreak that they typically see in other salmonella outbreaks. So something still isn't right, and things need to be done, again, in a way that addresses the entire system, not just sort of one element or one side of it. Mm-hmm. Listeners, let's just take a short break to remind you that you're listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are talking with Dr. Urvashi Rangan. She is the Director of Consumer Safety and Sustainability at Consumer Reports. Dr. Rangan, you bring up a really good point. This idea that we will not have a society with functioning antibiotics is so frightening to me because I remember just at the turn of the century looking at all of the things that have happened in the past hundred years to really improve quality of life and longevity. And there were little basic things like hand washing, of course, that we yeah. take, that we often take for granted. But of course, another big one was the development of antibiotics. And I think sometimes that when we have something functioning, we take it for granted. And I think that's where we are now. But the fact that even the CDC would say it might be, I don't know. I think that the people at the CDC are very bright and knowledgeable, and certainly that they know that this is the the underlying reason why we've got these resistant infections. It's quite frightening to me. In the report itself, there was a wonderful quote. I believe it was with Lance Price, who's a professor in environmental and occupational health mm-hmm. at George Washington University. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about different strains, and he, he has a great way to describe antibiotic resistance. He says, antibiotic resistance by itself doesn't make a pathogen more virulent, but when it occurs in a virulent strain, such as the Heidelberg, that was the strain of salmonella that is continuing to make people sick, as you mentioned, something inherently dangerous suddenly becomes even worse, a bacterium that Price says acts like a pit bull with rabies. 
I think that's a visual that we can all get our, our heads around. And this idea that somehow there is some pressure, some organization, some large corporate pressure that keeps antibiotics in the food system, I think we need to get to that. And I'm not sure how to do it. Well, I think you're right. And I think, you know, all these things are true. This is the more we study these problems, the more evident they really become to us. And maybe before we dive into that, you know, E. coli, generic E. coli is often thought to just be really an indicator of filth or fecal contamination, but not really to be anything concerned about unless it was one of the pathogenic forms of E. coli. It turns out there's some emerging new research going on by universities, and we decided to take a look, too, at some of the E. coli and the genes that they have. One of them is called XPEC which is an extra pathogenic E. coli. It's a gene that really adds virulence to an E. coli. And these things may increase the risk of things like urinary tract infections from E. coli and and different types of E. coli than we may have thought of before. And so we don't know everything yet, and that's the other thing to keep in mind with all of this. We're still learning, and the more we learn, the more concerning it all becomes. I think that's why, in a lot of ways... You know, 10, 15 years ago, we weren't talking about these issues. I think the good news, if there is good news to be had right now, is at least it isn't sort of much more in the public awareness. And so many groups, including ours, have been trying to get the government to start to to push them in the right direction with better policies. Nothing ever moves as fast as we would like when it comes to regulation And yet we do see that as the kind of long-term solution to a lot of these issues. Voluntary types of programs tend not to be as effective as they are hoped to be. And that's just a fact of life. And so in order to really make sure we have these mandatory standards in place that everybody has to follow, you have to have rules sort of put down in paper. And that's really what People like Congresswoman Slaughter are trying to do through the Preservation of Antibiotics and Medically Important Antibiotics Act is to really set those mandates that we need to stop using these drugs and stop overusing them in a growth promotion, disease prevention type of way. And it's important to hit at both of those things. You know, the industry has often said we don't really use a whole lot for growth promotion. But the fact is they do use plenty for disease prevention, and in a way, it's still low-level antibiotics on a daily basis or a frequent basis that can be offered to healthy animals. So it's a different way of saying it. The industry thinks it's an entirely different use sometimes, but it really isn't in terms of what it does, and it does something very similar to how you would to using it as a growth promoter. Mm-hmm. So it's important that we get those policies in place, and they are hard fought. These are huge industries making drugs to sell to animals on a wide scale kind of basis. And I think there's there's a number of forces at hand and lobby forces at hand that are really fighting those things. I think they're losing slowly over time, and I think that that's right, and that's what should be happening. And along with increased public awareness. You know, these bills end up having to be introduced probably four or five times before they get through. And I think for any of us who have been in food policy for a long time, that's typical. 
in the meantime, you know, what can consumers do? Where are the choices that they can make? Because there's other places to put pressure on the market and maybe create demand even sooner than regulations would require. And that's where we talk about labels and better choices for people because maybe we can create some of these demands now to start shifting things. The whole movement that School Food Focus has done has been fascinating, getting no antibiotic chicken into the school lunch program. You know, that's another kind of way that people are taking this on in different procurement veins or channels, and that's that's yet another way to kind of shift market demand, and it really successful, and then that sort of paves the way. You know, it starts to slowly pave the way for more sustainable producers to be able to get their product out there. You know, Melinda, you mentioned consolidation, and it's so true. The poultry industry especially is very, very consolidated, and it's very difficult to be a small producer who's progressive out there and trying to do something. The good news today is there are some out there, and they're pretty amazing. They've taken things into their own hands and are doing things the right way. And one of the gentlemen I talk about in the editorial, Will Harris, he has four animal welfare certifications. He has a farm that's certified organic. And I'll tell you, it's pretty hard to get one certification. It takes a lot of work. This is a man that's going so over and beyond that it's not difficult for him to get multiple certifications. And, wow, you know, it's sort of... Sometimes I think we only think we can dream of producers like this, but they do, in fact, exist. And the more we know about them, the more we can support products that they provide to the market. And that's what we also really try to do to help create that kind of demand in the shorter term. Yeah, I love what you said about helping the market drive the agricultural system. I agree with you with regard to larger purchasers really can have a greater influence than a single consumer. Hospitals also are in that same vein where Mm -hmm. many hospitals are saying, for example, those that follow the healthcare without harm guiding principles, they don't want to be bringing meat from an animal that has been treated with antibiotics into their institutions either because that further puts susceptible populations at higher risk. So these are all really great points. We don't have much time left, and I feel like we really need to take consumers into the meat case or the the grocery store now and take a look at what's available in the meat case. And I love your work with eco-labels, and I should let our listeners know that if you go to consumerreports.org, you will find in the report titled The High Cost of Cheap Chicken, you will find a wonderful list of food labels that are helpful and those that are extremely misleading. And we would be doing our listeners a disservice if we didn't just bring home a few of these. First and foremost, you and I both agree that the natural label means nothing. It has a connotation of this pastoral environment, but it is totally meaningless. Which labels have a meaning? There are a couple of good labels out there that do, and on our greenerchoices.org website, we actually break down all of the criteria even around chicken production specifically against all the different labels that are out there by how they're raised on the farms and what they ate and how their outdoor life was and slaughter treatment and processing. So if you want that kind of detail, you should definitely go check that out. In a nutshell, organic certainly offers 
production value over the conventional baseline. We also tell you, by the way, how all these labels stack up against the conventional baseline. Certified Humane Animal Welfare Approved, there are two other good labels out there. The American Grass-Fed Association is also another great label. You're not going to see that one so much on chicken. They tend to work more with Animal Welfare Approved to get the poultry certification. Um, The GAP labels that you see at Whole Foods, those are also adding a lot of value to the conventional baseline in terms of what they're doing. And GAP has five different steps. So GAP Step 1, GAP Step 2, and they increase in meaning up to the GAP Stage 5+. And those labels really are pretty good comprehensive programs out there. Food Alliance also has a label in the Pacific Northwest that has some decent standards in it. And there's even some newer labels you might not be aware of out there. There's the non-GMO Project Verified, which is actually going to start verifying animal feed and making sure that the feed animals eat um, is not GMO. So take a look at the chart. There's a lot more information than what I can go over here, but it's kind of a great bird's eye view as to which labels really are carrying the meaning and where um, and which ones don't even hold the muster. That's wonderful. And in fact, I would even recommend copying this off and bringing it with us to the grocery store because even dietitians can be confused. There are just so many labels coming at us all the time. One thing that I would really like to see is a ledger. I know that there's this constant pressure in media messaging about the value of inexpensive food or cheap food. You know, the cheaper, the better. But I think we need to see a full-cost accounting ledger that goes into the cost, for example, of a hard-to-treat urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. And if there's a way to put a price on discomfort, I don't know. I've not seen that. But the ledger has to discuss both the medical costs related to these problems. It also has to look at how much money perhaps the pharmaceutical industry is giving to legislators, to prevent protective legislation from being passed. It also has to consider when we recall, and we didn't talk about the the recalling of these products and why they're not recalled, and we don't have time, unfortunately. But I would like to see the cost, the environmental costs of recalls in terms of how much energy has been lost in packaging and fuel and feed. This is such a bigger issue beyond the price at the supermarket. Yeah, it's absolutely true, and um, we really do need to take a much more holistic approach. And the price of food, if we do it right, will change, but I bet you it won't change as much as you think it, it might. And when we do things like assessing if we took antibiotics, for example, out of pork production, um, feeding healthy pigs uh, antibiotics every day, probably raise the price about $0.05 cents a pound. Um, You know what? Most consumers are willing to pay that, and most consumers actually want meat that's produced without antibiotics. So um, I also think there's that demand, and isn't it interesting when we have that demand that we can't get the supply to meet it? That's a very odd paradigm in this country, and that's something we should continue to press. The demand exists, Mm -hmm. Um, so it's really a matter of these suppliers upping their game 
and, and meeting what, the, what their consumers actually want to buy. Well, Dr. Rankin, we're going to have to leave it at that. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. And just a reminder to our listeners, Dr. Urvashi Rangan is who we've been speaking with. She leads and directs the Consumer Safety and Sustainability Group for Consumer Reports. If you'd like to get a rundown of those eco-labels, simply go to www.greenerchoices.org. And the full report on the chicken study is available at consumerreports.org. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sooth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Rankin, it is always wonderful to speak with you. Thank you again for being my guest. For me, too. Thank you, Melinda. Mm-hmm.